And our commentators are with us on politics. It's Gareth Hughes and Bridget Morton. Kia ora kōrora. Morena. Kia ora morena. Bridget's a director with public and commercial law firm Franks and Ogilvie, a former senior ministerial advisor to the previous national-led government, still active in the party. Gareth is a former Green MP, now works for the Wellbeing Economy Alliance Aotearoa, no longer a member of any political party. Let's begin at Waitangi. Uh, we were just talking with Sam Ollie. Of course, last year so COVID-impacted. This year, 20,000 back, um, you know, the politicians back, the Iwi Forum being held again. It was relatively... It was a relatively calm mood, um, historically very calm mood. Did you perceive or detect anything of significance from it? Well, it's interesting what Hipkins was saying, which was that it felt more celebratory than in previous years. And I think that's probably true. You know, we didn't see mass protest. The EB chairs laid down quite a challenge to the government to sort of stay the, the line on co-governance. But from all accounts, it looks like a lovely sunny day and families were out there having a great time. Yeah, absolutely, and I think that's you know probably where most people want to aim with Waitangi Day. I think there was you know significant discussion as there always is in the lead up about who may speak and who may not, and how they may speak, and all of that kind of stuff. But I think for the most part, that is sort of within the sort of micro you know um, system that is sort of up in Northland and in that particular. It's not something that sort of affects wider politics. And has previously and dramatically has, with the likes of Helen Clark, and, <clears throat> um, and, and and of course we should note. The first year in so many years uh, w- without the, the, without the late uh, Titifai Harawira, of course, such a profound figure. Um, but on that issue of the show, if you like, and and the the way that tests politicians sometimes to their limits. Nothing of that ilk, really, was there? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that allowed the Prime Minister to look like the Prime Minister. It allowed you know, the ministers to act accordingly. The leader of the opposition was given in time. I think it's worthwhile you know, mentioning David Seymour, I think, took everyone by surprise on the pie pie and spoke you know, in Te Reo. Um, <clears throat> so I think that was you know, really interesting to see from him. And I think probably you know, shocked a few people up there as well. And I think really... A- admirable that he did so. I think also the sort of wider discussion um, which will probably sort of, you know, go into the, obviously there was quite a lot of discussion about co-governance up there um, and what that actually means and I see there's a piece in newsroom this morning, um, you know, quoting sort of Willie Jackson saying, you know, the time you know, the education, the ability to educate is gone now they need to reframe it. You saw Hipkins talking about, you know, sort of calling it this new thing called mahitahi which doesn't really seem to work with what actually, you know, co-governance that they'd previously sold. So I think they've actually whilst he's sort of said he's not wanting to revisit it, they've sort of walked away a lot from what actually, you know, co-governance in that sense would say the three waters 50-50 co-governance but, was. But what's interesting, Gareth, is that that wasn't received um, with you know, uh, a, 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 a vehement resistance but this is this power of the likes of the iwi Leaders Forum behind closed doors where the negotiation happens and it is interesting to see that dynamic. Um, instead of a necessarily very public response and, and response of protest, the negotiations are happening as they are. Yeah, and this is happening and it's going to be an ongoing process and even within the Labour Party you can see the significant strength and influence of the Māori caucus. So I think, you know, Bridget's right, it's interesting that sort of discussion around language because it really matters and I think what Tukorangi Morgan's come up with is quite a valuable contribution, mahitahi working together because um, as we saw, co-governance, co-management, the treaty everyone sort of sees what they want to see or fear what they want to fear in this. And I thought Ben Thomas had quite a good article over the weekend explaining that they were aware of this challenge of the term co-governance back in Chris Finlayson's office. similar to co-government, isn't it? Yes, that's right. 
Um, yeah. So, you know, the, the Prime Minister, you know, has acknowledged the backlash. He said that some parties have been out there to stoke fear, which I think is probably, probably accurate. Uh, but, you know, we, this is an evolving thing, and I think we're going to see... Um, yeah, even things like the, the the Māori Health Authority has often been used as an example of um, from critics as a as a bad example of co-governance. But actually, it's a crown entity. I mean, this this isn't co-governance. It it is a crown entity itself. And Luxon saying that you know we should be devolving more uh, power or, or roles to to local bodies. We could actually see more Māori services under that sort of mindset than currently well, this delivered. This was national and Tariana Turia under um, Fanaora. This was <laughs> well. That's why I think what was really interesting is actually what the Iwi um, Leaders Forum actually came out with was much closer to what actual national party policy is and I think what you saw Luxon referring to which is actually directly funding iwi and hapu to actually deliver the services rather than going through as national continues to be opposed to the Māori Health Authority a bureaucracy in Wellington. So I think you know that was kind of interesting in terms of framing it it wasn't as sort of uh, polarised I think as discussions have been previously even between the political parties as well as the interaction with a local iwi. His decision not to meet with the iwi leaders forum and his decision um, to speak about co-governance and you know this is our policy and both at Ratana and here and also a quite remarkable comment about the Māori seats which I recall it was pretty close to we don't see the point of them or I don't see the point of them. I'm interested at some point if he is to become Prime Minister and if he is being advised about what he's taking on when he becomes Prime Minister whether he needs to rethink the simplicity of that messaging or is that something you worry about when you become Prime Minister? Well I actually think that it's not right to say that that was a simplicity of messaging because I actually think it's been really nuanced because the simplicity of that messaging would be going back to you know um, the sort of Don Brash um, Kiwi not Iwi type rhetoric. I think he's going a much more nuanced it's funding you know directly to it's looking at whether or not the Māori electorate seats are actually still you know delivering value for you know democratic interaction. I think actually what we're getting to is a much more actually delivery of outcomes rather than sort of platitudes and things. And I think that is what he is going much more towards. I think you can probably look separately and there's a distinction there with ACT who is definitely playing to much more of a sort of strictly, you know, anti co-governments going really hard against that or any kind of funding. And that's where you see the distinction I think between those two parties in particular. Well, politicians are always going to spend their time chasing the votes they think are available to them. So he mustn't have thought there was much there. So with Reti deputising on Waitangi Day Interesting, though, that he did distance himself from Don Brash in the Iwi Kiwi you know, campaign from 2005. So I think he's aware that he's got some issues there. He had to once again clarify a comment he made around the treaty being an experiment. So we're seeing this this um, pattern reemerge itself, which is um, makes a comment and a day or two later has to clarify and explain it. All right. Uh, the Prime Minister's off to Australia and... Um a different environment this year. Was it just last year where uh, the then Prime Minister Adern did choose to make some fairly direct commentary on the uh, 501 policy with Scott Morrison having a sort of a ray smile on his face, I think, at the time? Probably thinking that's not going to do any harm to his support base. Uh, but that's been a big move that we haven't really discussed so far, just in the last week, or at least indication of a big move rethinking the 501 policy, at least it being carte blanche, yeah? Yeah, and I think that's really positive because it's come with such social harm and, and uh, impact on our communities. Also seeing maybe a faster pathway to residency for the 600,000 Kiwis uh, in Australia. Interesting, too, those connections over, um, you know, working for the Wellbeing Economy Alliance, that... Um, 
well-being approach that both governments are using. So Jim Chalmers, the Australian Treasurer, had a, I thought, fascinating. He got quite a lot of criticism for it, quite an erudite sort of essay around the role of the economy and, and the state and how we measure things. essentially. Mm. Rethinking capitalism, essentially. Yeah, that, that's right. So I think we'll see those trading notes uh, on that sort of new approach that sort of the left-wing social democratic parties are using across the, both sides of the Tasman. So will it be 11? I think it probably will be. And I think we saw, you know, I definitely underestimated the power of the sort of Albanese-Odun relationship when that sort of first meeting happened. Um, you know, those key things about 501s and citizenship, we thought there wasn't going to be any movement on that. And there was. And so I think it's to the credit that they have actually made that criteria change around the 501s. Um, interesting, the kind of detail is whether or not that actually changes. It's essentially not... discretion, is it? It's more case-by-case yeah, decision Yeah, part of the decision-making process right. is looking at what the connections are to a Australia. It's yeah. still not looking really at like what happens when you just chuck them out and what happens to the recipient country, but it is a step closer. I think it would be really interesting to see what happens on that citizenship pathway, but I think we can expect nothing less than a sort of, as you say, a bit of a love between Albanese and Hipkins. Let's look back again. We're having some very long weeks in politics at the moment. The first polls came out last week. Uh, were you surprised by a 5% bump, I think, in both polls? Um, a chunk of it, a good chunk of it actually taken from Greens and from New Zealand First rather than necessarily harming National. But the headline was, of course, that Labour was a smidgen ahead of National again, not in a position to govern. Uh, but it does change the, what has been the recent commentary. Were you surprised by the scale of the bump? Yeah, I was surprised, and I think we discussed it, and Gareth picked much more of a bump, I think, in their lines, and I saw much of a steady increase, which to me also, you know, often with polls is that you look for the trends, not individual polls. And so what I would be really interested to see whether how much that sort of increases, because I think it has the potential to increase more, because if Hipkins can get it right on what he's taking off the policy agenda in the next couple of weeks. I think there were some other interesting things from that poll, the big one, I think, for National is what was happening around Luxon's numbers in terms of trust. That's obviously a big issue for them too because in election year you do have to you know, fill the vacuum with what you will do differently. So that's obviously a big thing for them to overcome. Interestingly, on polls though, and you know, it speaks a little bit, we didn't discuss at Waitangi that obviously Winston Peters and Shane Jones were there quite prominently. Um, you know, there's a Royal Morgan poll out this morning that has New Zealand first on 5%. That's which interesting just because goes back they got our, hit in both of those polls. Yeah, last week. but just goes back to our old thing of never ever write off Winston Peters. Well, that's true too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it was, I mean, great to get polls on the, on the same night and they both showed a similar story. So I think, you know, you can see there was a genuine Hipkins bump uh, for Labour of about 5%. What I thought was interesting, though, was the One News canter, Labour's growth came at the expense of the Greens, whereas the Read Research 3 news came at the expense of National. Okay. So with the Greens hovering at 7%, you know, that's a little too close to that 5% threshold for comfort, mm. where they've been so stable at that 10% <clears throat> mark. So where this growth has actually come from, I think, will be an interesting question. Well, that is the question. Which, which votes are in play? And I saw another very obscure poll, the interpretation of which I could not make no, any, any sense of about, about who, was, who was now in play. But um, there's no doubt that even in what you might call the fairly sort of centrist or swing voter realm, uh, there was support for a change of leader away from Adun, which which suggests that that fatigue level was far greater or far broader than just the extremes, right? So that's interesting. Um, but then, you know, what what is in play and which of those votes will be decisive? And you know all parties will be sort of sifting through that as time 
as time progresses and perhaps future polls come out, right? Yeah, and I guess, you know, the, the polling sort of vindicates Ardern's decision. She put the team first and um, she became Prime Minister on the back of poor polling under Little and has now, you know, left as a result of uh, a, a steady downward slide, which it looks like Hipkins has, has turned around. Um, I think you can see where the, they're looking for votes in the fuel tax extension decision. You know, it's that sort of... Brad Olson came out and called it an incredibly dumb economic policy, but because it benefited the uh, wealthier New Zealanders primarily. So it's those sort of Auckland voters and car-dependent cities, the provincial towns that the, the parties are chasing. Which brings us back to uh, Christopher Luxon, because perhaps some of the reason that Hipkins was able to get this bump, and we'll see if he can sustain it, was that there are so many people still unsure who might be ready to move, one would have thought, to a change of government after two terms, because it's been a hell of a two terms. But there still is a real doubt about him. And we, we were talking um, at the time Ardern left over whether he, they really have to rethink their strategy. They can't just sit and watch Labour fail now. And is he ready to you know, switch strategy and perhaps to be more convincing that yes, he's there and he's ready. Yeah, I think there was always an issue going up against somebody like Adern, who was, I would call, sort of personality plus. It was hard to sort of shine, you know, particularly sort of, I think, who you are individually against that. But I also am a bit sort of reluctant to give anyone sort of a, a free go on that sort of behaviour, because if you want to be leader, you have to get the trust of people around you. And I do think that that is a key weakness for National at the moment, is that whilst I think definitely over the last sort of six months while the polls have been going down, Labour has been not just sort of, um, I think failing, but in terms of they have just been pushing so much reform and so much through that there wasn't actually that much room for opposition. And if they'd put out policy, it probably would have been washed away the sort of next day or so. But now is ultimately the time that it has to be, you know, they have to be start rolling out. They have to be showing that their solutions focus, not just problem identifiers. Gareth, is it, is it policy necessarily? Or is it doubts over whether he and his team are ready to be the government? And I don't want to hear again about I ran in New Zealand. <laughs> you know, this is a country. Um, I'm sure I will. What do you believe the reservations are? Well, I mean, people vote for policy, but we know from uh, academic research they primarily vote on personalities, and he's still trying to introduce himself to the to the public. You know, compared to Hipkins, you know, he had such a prominent role over COVID that even though he's in, you know, what only two weeks in the job, people people know him, and Luxon's still got to do that. I think the business story is a powerful one. He should be telling more, not just about Air New Zealand, but Unilever. Given the economic conditions, he could have a really powerful story to tell. But they have focused so much on the. You know, they've got some hits in opposition, they've done some good work there, but they haven't really been telling the story of where they see the country. A lot of the policies they have released, you know, are sort of retreads of the previous national government. We haven't sort of seen this big new articulation with actually uh, meat on it that tells his story uh, in a compelling way. Well, I think, you know, we go back to, you know, uh, Nicola Willis did a big social investment speech about... She's not the leader, Bridget. She's not the leader, but she's part of that leadership team. And you were saying, is he and his team ready? Mm. And, you know, that was a big articulation of where they were framing, where their policy was going, etc. It made hardly any, you know, headlines, any kind of way through, because that's what you kind of expect from that type of speech in that timing. So I don't think it's necessarily fair to say that, you know, they should be putting about this reframing, because people aren't really listening or weren't really listening as you get closer to the election I think particularly as you get closer to the budget you do actually have to have that alternative you have to be clear about what your priorities are what you will cut and what you will fund Is it also about what you have to say though about what the government's doing or about what the problems are 
And yes, there's a power in getting your sound bites right, but sometimes you also have to have more than sound bite, right? And this is where Bill English was probably criticised sometimes for being overly wonky and overly deep and overly, you know, um, uh, information packed. But I don't think anyone ever doubted his knowledge or preparedness from his perspective of subject matter. And and is that where Luxon still has to convert? Of course. How many years was English an MP before he came leader? And is this where the doubts still still reside? I think there's definitely a little bit about whether or not people trust him in the Prime Minister role. But ultimately, as you know, Gareth says, people vote on personality. So if he can demonstrate that he can be had been trusted in business across many other aspects, that he's been successful, I suppose the John Key story then he can, I think, demonstrate that he is, you know, Prime Ministership material. I actually think, you know, going back to Waitangi, some of those discussions we had about the nuanced, you know, Crown Māori relations space is actually where he's hitting it really right because he is not relying on platitudes and, you know, the 30-second soundbite. He's actually having really interesting, you know, questioning, pushing back on some things, discussions, and that's, I think, what makes people look statesmanlike as opposed to just a leader of the opposition. Yeah, he doesn't have that easy charm of key and that sort of charisma which came through. And, uh, you know, we're still introducing himself, but, you know, authenticity is one of the hardest things. Eight months out from asking to be Prime Minister. And I guess that's the challenge, isn't it? Um, I interrupted. Oh, I was just going to say authenticity is one of the hardest things for a politician to pull off. And, you know, as you pointed out, he's still so new in the role, still relatively new to Parliament. So uh, it'll be interesting over the course of the year to see if he sort of is more comfortable in his shoes uh, in political communication. How long to each of you, uh, how long till um, one would expect any immediate novelty bump to dissipate? In other words, is it the next set of polls we're looking at? Is it post-budget we're looking at, when do we get a sense of the trends that you alluded to, Bridget? I think really, you know, the kind of novelty bump, I think really comes down to whether or not he can actually deliver on what he was sort of articulating, you know, whether he can deliver on the sort of bread and butter. Obviously, he went for that first, you know, fuel cut extension as the number one way to do that first. But ultimately, he has to do something on Three Waters beyond getting Mahuta out of the portfolio. He has to do, I think, things on the RNZ merger, on the social investment insurance. He has to do something about slowing down the RMA. And that's when people will go, well, actually, you're, you know, you're authentic in terms of what you're saying. You're not just a dirt light. Well, the other four fuel uh, tax cuts hadn't uh, stopped the slide, so I don't think that's going to be a, a major play. But obviously the, the policy reset and then the budget are, these. I think, the two keystone events that are either going to lock in this jump, which sees the Labour and National Parties neck and neck, perhaps on track for a hung parliament, or the role of Te Pāti Māori really crucial, um, to see if it's really locked in or if this is just a novelty bump. What do we read into another MP going list only? James Shaw, I think, in Wellington Central joining Grant Robertson going list only there. And I know uh, perhaps there is an argument for promoting another Green local councillor in Tamatha Paul, giving her an opportunity to go and contest that seat. But the old cynic in me also sees MPs potentially exiting in the not-too-distant future, depending on the election outcome and and not wanting to create a mess on the way out. Is that a viable theory? Yeah, I think there's probably an element. You know, no decision is made on one factor. And I think if I was sitting in Grant Robinson's shoes, I would be looking ahead in a similar way that Adun does. I think he has had 
as much a sort of heavy lifting within the government as she did over the last couple of years. And while he was like, you know, have I got another sort of another term as Minister of Finance in me, therefore going list only, I think I do have some, you know, sympathy for the fact that he ultimately too, you know, Minister of Finance is a book portfolio. As he referenced, previous Minister of Finances have been list only. But there's no doubt at all that this does look like a nice way to have that tidy, if you know, if they don't get back in, a tidy way to step out. And what of James Shaw? <clears throat> well, as a Wellington Central voter, it's um, surprising no one in Parliament seems to want to stand for the seat. But with, with, with Shaw, I think it's quite interesting. I mean, it's slightly embarrassing. Only a week before he said he was going to seek the nomination, and then within a week he's nominating someone else, a, so a sitting councillor. Well, my understanding is that there was intense conversations over the last week, which was quite a genuine conversation. Who is the best candidate uh, to, to, to win the seat in a sort of a potentially open race that um, is the Greens' strongest party voting seat? So um, I think the take party... 20, you can take 20% of the votes the Greens in Wellington Central... But if you wanted that to be an anchor or a backstop seat, why wouldn't it be your highest profile MP? I know you have interminable ructions it seems, within the party over what a Green MP and a Green co-leader should be and should be doing. and you know. But there's no doubt that on actual name recognition... He's streets ahead of anyone else. Yeah, and I think it's interesting that there is a change happening within the Greens. I mean, I don't want to personalise this, but I lost the Wellington Central electorate race to James Shaw in 2009 at a time where the Greens were looking for sort of more business mainstream appeal than my old activist background. And I think the party now, after a spell in government, are looking for more energy, uh, particularly young Māori women, uh, showing that... I've, I've been talking to a lot of people because I've been interested to know this, this backstory, and it does seem like it was a genuine question, who was the best campaigner? And Shaw's got a lot of skills, uh, a lot of work in government. You put Maybe, Tori Farno up if you wanted the best can- campaigner. She just cleaned up the Wellington mayor, uh, the mayoralty. And that's the thing. I mean, Paul seems to have genuine momentum behind her. For, okay. for her sort of phone calling and door knocking events, you've got 40 to 50 people turning up. Whereas, you know, Shaw isn't that sort of on the ground campaigner. Um, but it's interesting that the Greens, you know, are also going hard for, for Rongatai with Paul Eagle stepping down. So they don't need these seats as a backstop, but it's an interesting opportunity for them to demonstrate their credibility and electoral appeal and actually grow into a more well, sort of medium party. A youth vote, to, to the extent that that um, is always a challenge, but but for the Greens, you could see the argument there and, and possibly the turnout, the vote um, momentum that was seen during that local mayoralty challenge is what they're hoping for, even at party vote level. What do these smaller parties have to watch out for, I guess. I I can't think of um, an election year going back as far as my brain can reach where both ACT and the Greens have been so um, comfortable in the polls at a time where Labour and National were also faring well. It's pretty extraordinary. You're flagging just beware that 5% threshold with respect to the Greens. you know, what what is their strategy from here? Probably increasingly crowded out from here as the, as the you know, the two big parties' scrutiny comes on. Well, I think both ACT and the Greens will be trying to demonstrate that they are, will be able to drive the major party in a different direction. It's almost like twisting the arm behind the back. And that's where the Greens' language around going further and faster, you hear that quite often. I, I think Swarbrick probably looks quite safe in, in Auckland Central, so they'll always have that sort of backstop, but um, it is interesting that Labour has a number of incumbent MPs stepping down in the Greens' highest performing party vote seat, so while Mayor Hawkins, the, the, the former Mayor of Dunedin, isn't standing, and that was another potential seat in play, uh, you know, they, they could look at a couple. 
Yeah, I think ultimately, and you know, I'm not going to legend Gareth on the history of the Greens, but ultimately the Greens have we started from the activist base, and you can see it happening in Australia at the last election where they picked up a number of sort of inner city electorate type seats. So you can see why the Greens here would go, well, that's a smart thing to do in terms the of establishing mm. that. Well, no, the teals are different. Okay. These are the Greens actually sitting, um, okay. winning seats as opposed to the teals who are sort of you know liberal lights or um, more your blue greens kind of space. So I think that you know the potential that sort of transition from the activist party into, you know, a bit more of a mainstream party. But then, you know, Gareth here is talking about much more of the sort of swing back to the activists. I think there's been a lot of comparisons made between Timothy Paul and Chloe Swarbrook that she, you know, is going to do the same thing. I, you know, I'm pretty reluctant to just go because they're young females that therefore they're of the same breed. But there's no doubt that a lot has been learnt from that Auckland Central campaign about how you mobilise people and make the Greens palatable as a local electorate MP that they're going to be focused on, let's call them bread and butter issues, rather than just environmental issues. And it's interesting, that Australian connection, because I know the Greens campaign director has run campaigns in Australia and there's been quite an exchange of, of, of campaign workers over the years so the, the Greens, they've been trying to learn the lessons of a, a formidable campaigning machine in Australia. And for ACT, it's, there's going to be no let-up, really, is that um, I, I think uh, it might have been Thomas Coughlin writing recently about the, for the most part, relatively, you know, cooperative relationship between Labour and the Greens. I can recall one election where that certainly wasn't the case, um, more than one um, in post-election negotiations. But for National and ACT, it's a different thing. And we're not likely to see them, are we going to see anyone trying to present them necessarily as a, as a government and waiting, or are they both just going to go hard for their own vote? I think it's the left that will try and present them as, you know, uh, the same thing, because it is in their interest to paint every act policy as a national party policy, because they want to try and show that the national's not centrist, they're much more you know, um, to the extreme right as they would classify act. So I don't think you're going to see that from act and national because it is in their interest to have separate brands to appeal to different people. I think there is much more of a um, better relationship between Luxon and Seymour than there was between Collins and Seymour. So I think that's a different, you know, if you're thinking about what a future government looks like, I think it's definitely a very workable coalition. I think for ACT, though, that one of the um, issues going forward is obviously it does in an election year become more and more about those two centre parties. They're going to have to really, you know, particularly if the government is able to pull back on some of these things like a co-governance or the social insurance scheme, they're going to have to find some policy areas where they can really target and go hard but I think they have demonstrated they're pretty good at that They have and they have also picked up to date anyway a fair chunk of disgruntled national vote and it remains if they to see if they can if they can hold on to that if they hit the buttons first earliest strongest and, and they can hold on to it all right thanks both of you very very much that is Gareth Hughes and Bridget Morton 